0: I first met David Stockwell a few years back when I was working on a documentary web series called Smell, Touch, Taste. Each of the four episodes was just 10 minutes long featuring a different restaurant in and around New York City. And the thing that fascinated me back then and still does in fact today is trying to understand what compels people to open restaurants. Going up against staggering odds with long hours, hard work, and all sorts of unknowns but people continue to do it. They open their passion projects. So again, on that web series, we profile four restaurants in the summer of 2017. And now, just two years later, three of the four are already closed. The only one that survived? Fawn Restaurant in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn, owned and operated by today's guest, David Stockwell. The thing is though, his resume is not something you would have bet on. All of the other chefs and owners I interviewed for that web series were career hospitality folks, professionals with impressive credits and, and beautiful restaurants. David though, changed course mid-career, leaving a steady life as an architect to bring his restaurant dreams to life. And it was something I really loved about how David approached his work, how he still approaches his work. And in fact, I think there's a lot to be learned from this interview. He's come at this new career of his in restaurants as a true outsider, and so he's always questioning his decisions, never afraid to say that he doesn't know the answer to something. It's a quality I'm trying to bring to my own work these days, and so I was really fortunate to be able to to reconnect with him. So this week is another long episode, it's about 90 minutes or so, where I'm sitting down with a successful restaurateur who, by his own admission, is just sort of winging it. Stick around for my interview with David Stockwell. There's an old saying that goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who can see when shown, and those who will never see. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for everyone in the middle. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly marketing podcast dedicated entirely to the restaurant industry. So normally each week I choose a different topic. We explore that topic. We pick it apart. Uh, hopefully by the end we come up with some useful insights, things we can apply to our own business. Uh, but this week actually I'm bringing you another interview. Uh, I feel very fortunate to be able to sit down and chat with uh, a guy named David Stockwell, uh, owner of Fawn Restaurant in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chip, and welcome back to Fawn. It's good to see you again. Yeah, glad to be back here. So. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was um, producing a web series called Smell, Touch, Taste uh, that ran uh, four different episodes where we uh, we featured uh, different restaurants, uh, kind of in the New York City area. And uh, Fawn was one of the restaurants that we featured. We did a ten-minute, sh- uh, sorry, we did a ten-minute uh, web series episode all about the restaurant, and kind of the opening of the restaurant. Uh, because I think uh, David's story is really unique, which is part of the reason why I wanted to get him on uh, this show uh, so he could talk a little bit about it. So uh, I'm glad to be back here. We're sitting in. Uh, the little back patio here at fawn uh so fawn is a little um uh, neighborhood restaurant in prospect heights uh how many seats are inside we got about 40 seats inside about the same outside yeah so 40 seats inside 40 seats outside and the outdoor space is absolutely gorgeous there's you know vines overhead there's this giant tree right in the middle there um uh, there's a little garden out back uh it's uh, really an ideal place to have a, a nice meal spring summer fall It's says uh, three seasons it's it's great we do a couple uh, nights in the winter here. You know, global warming has its upsides, I suppose. <laughs> it's uh, it's one of my favorite places in all of Brooklyn. Um, uh, food's great here. In any anyway, event, I'm glad to be back here. Uh, I'm glad to be sitting back here with uh, with you. So um, this is a show about marketing, uh, but I always like to give our listeners some context. So I guess let's go back, uh, because David, you took a unique path to get here uh, into the restaurant business. Um, in a previous life, uh, you were an architect uh so can you talk about that just a little bit uh sure yeah i i am a career architect
1: i still consider myself one even though i'm doing something else at the moment but you know it's it's in me but uh <laughs> i had i was working for a, a great firm i was there for almost 15 years which is a testament to how much i liked it there because that's almost unheard of in the field of architecture and what was the firm you
0: can say uh,
1: that was at, that was at studio daniel Libeskind
0: which is a, a pretty big deal in the architecture world. Uh, most notably, they... Uh, they were the, uh, the uh, master planner
1: of the World Trade Center, which, uh, uh, of course, um, that was um, a huge project about 15 years ago, and that led to uh, a, a huge expansion in the, in the business that came to them. And uh, all kinds of... Uh, it was just a really great time to be there. All kinds of, of new projects all over the world.
0: Yeah. So when uh, when I say that David was uh, was really at the top of his game uh, in the architecture world, um, you have to understand just to give it some context uh, he really was uh, working at a very, very high level with a very uh, reputable, very sought after uh, firm. So you're there for 15 years.
1: I was, yeah, I was a senior associate and uh, got to work on stuff all over the world. Uh, I got to go present projects in in Belgrade uh, or Los Angeles or or, uh, Las Vegas. We were all over the place, and uh, you know, I was really fortunate. I got to work on some really avant-garde, outrageous stuff. Uh, Daniel is known for his kind of irreverent design strategies and his buildings that that make people scratch their head in wonder sometimes, Uh, which, you know, to me that's that's the most interesting thing you can do is uh, kind of confound people uh, with your work a a little bit, but also still, more importantly, um, uh, make them feel uh, at home and comforted
0: and inspired by the space. Yeah, not dissimilar to uh, to what we aspire to do in the restaurant industry. So, you're there for 15 years, and then you suddenly switch gears and became a restaurateur. Um, talk to me about that transition. So, where did the itch come from? Um, how long was it itching before you decided to scratch it? And and talk a little bit about that transition, if you can. Sure.
1: Well, the itch, I think, was was planted. Probably when I was a kid, just uh, growing up with my uh, the Italian side of my family, and just the amount of uh, attention uh, they put into putting on a, a family meal. Uh, my mom's dad was a really good cook. My mom was a good cook, and uh, you know they kind of just by osmosis uh, that that interest in in that the quality of that event that you put on for people it just went into me, and I have. From a very young age, I always took an interest in cooking with my mom, and uh, I was the one who went away to college while everyone else was making ramen noodles. I'm having dinner parties and reading recipe books and uh, trying to, you know, put on some sort of impressive display all the time. I just, I just it was a release for me. Uh, and I, I had a good friend of mine who I also went to architecture school with, both undergraduate and graduate school, and he uh, he had a similar thing. He's coming from a Chinese family. Uh, and his mother was always putting on impressive multi-course meals at his home. He grew up here in Brooklyn and we together kind of amped each other up. We put on big dinner parties. We talked about how we were going to have a design firm and a restaurant all in the same building someday. <laughs> uh, so this was a, this was a, uh, germinating concept from a very young age. Uh, he still lives down the street, but he's, uh, he's already been in and out of the, the food industry, <laughs> uh, <laughs> And I, I don't know if he's coming back, <laughs> but uh, he comes into the restaurant a lot. It, so, it does tend to uh, chew people up and spit them back out if you're not careful. But uh, so this this thought, this idea of uh, doing something with food and uh, events and that level of experience was, was always kind of a part of my ideal setup. I went into architecture, um, you know, also a, a huge passion of mine. And, you know, that had to be kind of number one for, for a long time to take that career seriously. But I, this was always kind of in the background. After a while, you um, you know, were sort of comfortable in, a, in our neighborhood. I'm starting to look around. I see r- restaurant spaces come up for rent. I peek in there. I talk to the realtor just to kind of poke around for information and, and you know, daydream a little bit. I had been doing that for 10 years before I actually took a serious
0: step in this wow, direction. I don't, I don't think I ever realized that it was that long you were, you know, half-heartedly poking around at spaces.
1: Yeah, it's um, almost just a sort of backhanded hobby just to sit there and dream a little bit. I, I didn't really take myself seriously with that thought. It was more just for fun to give myself something to daydream about. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's funny because, you know, you know, looking at vacant spaces isn't uh, everybody's idea of fun, but uh, but that, that was a uh, A little side you know a side hobby for you Um, absolutely yeah
1: I mean it's it's also a great way to just kind of get a peek into the guts of buildings that you normally don't ever get to see and as an architect you're interested in that stuff yeah that that (laughs)
0: makes a lot of sense as you put it that way so it's it's itching for a while then what was the what was the event or was there a single event or you know how did it culminate into you actually you know biting the bullet interestingly enough uh, what happened is uh, my wife and I had
1: a baby girl this was uh, back in 2013, so six years ago.
0: She's now in first grade.
1: All grown up. All grown up in first grade, which is somehow it's that's how these Brooklyn kids are. Seems like, but um, yeah, it, it seems like the, in some ways, the worst time to start thinking more seriously about upheaving your your life and your career, and going into something that you're going you know you're going to have to devote uh, you know eight days a week uh it, it just seems illogical and it was because uh you know when i really started started getting into this particular project that became fawn she was about two years old and i you know i i cherished every moment that i could spend with her i didn't want to cut into that and so i that made me second guess uh, rocking the boat at all uh, but i had also kind of I, I felt like i had simultaneously reached a point where i uh just just for creative inspiration I, I i knew i needed to to make a change at some point yeah uh i had been working for the Libuskins for 15 years and, and i loved working with them 15 years is a long time and i just got to that point where um i i needed a, a my own kind of creative expression uh to do something radically different just for my for my own development my own ideas and then i started to think about it in terms of here I have my two-year-old girl, and she's starting to get to be an age where she really understands what's going on around her, and I kind of wanted her to see her daddy do something that was really hard, and even though I knew I had to make sacrifices, that, I, you know, despite the fact that I knew it would take away some time that I could spend with her, at least in the near term, I thought about... That process of her witnessing at a young age one of her parents making the choice, despite how hard it was, to follow your dream anyway, and and really see the struggle, yeah, and you know, hopefully come out the other side with, uh, with a beautiful thing that you worked so hard to create that 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 is here, and I thought the the positive influence that could come with her observing that could be you know the thing that makes it all, all worth it. And we sacrifice a little bit of, of time. I'm extra tired all the time, maybe a little too grumpy sometimes cause I'm not sleeping enough, but he, he, you know, she got to see me build something. And I hope that she takes that as a, an idea that you can do things even though they're hard.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think it's really interesting. I, I think about this a lot because I think just in two generations, I think, um, kind of like the American lifestyle has changed pretty drastically. I mean, my dad is, uh, you know, coming up to retirement age, but he's worked for two companies his entire career. And I remember when he uh, switched companies halfway through his career, it was like a really big deal. Um, but now you're talking about changing not only companies, but careers, entire you know directions. And I think. Uh, more and more, that's happening, and we keep hearing about the gig economy. That people are doing multiple things uh, at once. Um, I, I certainly, uh, I certainly partake in that. I do a lot of different things in my life. You know, not just hosting the podcast and working in restaurants, but you know, I'm a food photographer and, and a writer and, and things like that. Um, and I think to pass that on to um, to your daughter, I've, I've had similar thoughts like that because uh, I have my son who's four now. And, um, and I do think about that. What do I want him to take away from, you know, from what I do and what, what are the values that I want to instill in him? Um, but just in, in a couple of generations, just how drastically that's changed that, um, the thing that makes you really interesting, uh, as a guest for the podcast, the fact that you did change careers uh, so drastically, um, seems crazy, but, but at the same time, doesn't seem that crazy. I just, I think more and more people are, uh, are gonna be doing it, and I think uh, our kids are gonna, are gonna have a whole different way of looking at career.
1: Sure, and I think that there's, there's overlap in what I'm doing now in the architecture world. I mean, there are a lot of different ways to be an architect, but um, I this is about creating a, an experience in a space for people to, uh, to come out feeling positive. This is not so far off from what we did in the studio. You know, the, my day-to-day involves a lot more getting my hands dirty. I do a lot of plumbing. <laughs> I had to, I've had to learn all sorts of different different skills. Uh, Home ownership uh, and business ownership. Exactly, which, you know, in some ways, I personally, I, I like working with my hands. That was always an interesting part of architecture. I, I studied architecture at a time where there was actually more hand drawing and, and hand model making going on, and in some ways, There was an abrupt change that happened not long after i i studied in school or even during that time everything was going digital kids in school now i I, i'm pretty sure most of them don't ever learn how to draw by hand i know because i do sit in on some reviews at at uh, universities around and i i see what they're doing and you know it's a different skill they're learning I actually, one of the things I liked about architecture was the use of your hands and building things and making things that was, you know, using your body to do things. I get a little bit
0: more of that now, for yeah. sure. <laughs> this is a I, this i I'm thinking back to the conversations we had a couple of years ago. And I, you know, I remember you drawing the parallels back then about, you know, the things that tracked over from architecture to this. And, you know, restaurants and food is certainly um, one of the last few holdouts. It is a handmade thing. I mean, yeah, you can get, you know, corporate you know uh, you know industrial versions of ravioli and all that but you know to make ravioli you got to you got to make the dough you got to roll it out you got to make a filling you got to pipe it in you got to pinch it and you know
1: always tasting and, and smelling what you're doing you're using yeah.
0: all your senses
1: and uh, you know that's that's the presentation of what's on the plate there's also the 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 making the experience for the guests, which is really more in my wheelhouse, uh, you know, getting the lighting right, getting the sound right, uh, being a a warm person and making sure your staff is, uh, you know, extending that and just kind of creating this familial home like place where people can experience that kind of warmth.
0: Yeah. So let's stick a pin in that for one second, because this gets to the heart of of what I really want to talk about. Um, and I think, um, because you're talking about hospitality, and what's interesting is that you didn't come from a, a quote-unquote hospitality background. You didn't, you know, you didn't make your way up in the restaurants, but um, you've intuited that. Uh, but before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the restaurant because uh, if people don't live here in New York City and don't live here in Brooklyn, um, I want to give them some context so that they know uh, that they know a little bit more. So we're in the Prospect Heights uh, neighborhood of Brooklyn. We're on Vanderbilt, um, which is. Um, kind of a whole string of different, like, cafes and, and restaurants and shops and all of that. Um, talk to me about Fawn. Tell the people, the listeners at home who don't know the restaurant, um, tell them what it is. and, and Sure.
1: About it. Fawn, I, I've always uh, imagined being a kind of extension of people's... Home space. It's a. It's intentionally very much a neighborhood restaurant. That's what we set out to be. Of course, we we want it to be a destination for people to come to, a, as well. But we always envisioned creating uh, a bar, creating a, a patio, creating these places where people in the neighborhood could come, see each other over and over again, get to know us, and really uh, you create these very uh, comforting spaces that uh, allow people to kind of expand, especially when you think about our patio, expand into a a kind of backyard that I I think people in the city dream of having. Um, Some people move out of the city so that they can have it in their own backyard, but the people that live here by and large, they don't have this kind of space as part of their home. That's what we're here to be. And then to provide that kind of uh, home cooking by somebody who's really creative and brings all sorts right. of dimensions. So I'm not gonna uh, I'm not gonna say we're doing exactly what people should be expected to do at home. We'll uh, ferment things and stir sauces for days and days and days to create what's on your plate. But uh, the idea is to really create uh, create this idea of of coming to uh, as a guest to a dinner party at a good friend's house where you can feel comfortable and know that they are taking care of you having a good time and they just
0: want you you they want you to be there right and this restaurant is very homey it is very comfortable it's warm um you know you come in it's this tiny little room when you first walk in the bar's got what six seats eight seats yes depending on how tightly we want to squeeze them in yeah it's exactly it's this like tiny little bar but the bartenders you know like like the MC, you know, the just, you know, conducting business, hosting, you know, the crowd there. There's a couple tables up front. Um, you have to walk then past the kitchen, which is tiny. It's amazing. They put out the kind of quality of food that they do out of this tiny kitchen, which fits two, maybe three people.
1: Well, we pack four on that little line <laughs> on, a, on a Friday or Saturday. That's
0: crazy. <laughs> they mean, don't they don't move around. They just stand in place. <laughs> they just stand there. It's I, I've watched them um, I've watched them during service, and it's uh, it's a feat that they don't that they don't stab each other or, or cut each other. Um, it, it's really really tight, but they execute uh, food at a very high level out of there. Then you come into the little back room. And there's another you know six tables, eight tables back there, uh, and then you come out here to the back patio, which again uh, this is where we're sitting now, um, and it is the. Uh, it is the most beautiful uh, patio out here. It's so comfortable, um, but it is—it's it, a comfortable restaurant, and the food is really warm. It's delicious. It's—it's um, it's not overly finicky. They're doing some cool stuff, um, but still delivering food you're—you're you're gonna, the kind of food you want um, from a neighborhood restaurant. So that's Fawn. So tell me about—tell uh, me about the name. Talk about the name for a little bit. Well, Fawn
1: is a, a, a mythical beast from uh, Roman. Uh, lore. It's actually an extension of the, the Greek uh, character of, of Pan or the, the satyr. Uh, Faun is uh, similarly a, uh, a half goat, half boy that wanders the, uh, the wilderness, kind of uh, right outside of, of, of the towns. So the, the Romans imagined this little, little being being uh, part guide uh, for people lost in the wilderness, but also part trickster. A lot of mischief, a lot of uh, wine drinking, and music. You always see this character with with uh, the 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 flutes that they that he uh, that he blows into. Uh, so it's this sort of a playful, slightly mischievous being that's that exists outside of the population center, and it just seemed to really embody a lot of what we are doing here. With the with the menu, with the sort of playful attitude we take in, in, in exploring things that are just a little bit off off the the beaten path, there, but also literally providing this this wild-like environment. I intentionally let the garden kind of grow with some wildness. I, I, it's not uh, it's not completely pruned and uh full of of topiary it actually you 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 know you want it to feel like you're kind of stepping into a a a relative wilderness and we amp that up as much as possible
0: and it's interesting to watch now uh, because restaurants a few years old and uh and watching how things have kind of become overgrown and it's taken on a whole life of its own out here in the back patio it feels um, it still feels covered because, again, there are these vines that run overhead and this tree that runs right in the center. It's now, you know, the branches are up and over your heads as you're sitting here. Um, it's uh, it's really cool. It does embody all of that. Um, the listeners out there uh, who have been following the podcast for a while um, know that I live here in Brooklyn, and so it perhaps um, comes as no surprise that a bunch of the interviews here on the show are with restaurateurs and, and chefs uh, based here. Um, but what I love about Brooklyn is that... Um, it's a bunch of different neighborhoods, right? The, com- the communities are distinct. Um, and then so are the restaurants that then serve the communities. Um, and all of that to say, uh, I think a lot of the lessons from these interviews are applicable, not just to other restaurant owners in urban markets, um, but I think to small towns and, and suburbs really anywhere. Um, talk about this neighborhood and why, um, why did you land on this? Was it just because you found the space or did you start zeroing in on this neighborhood? Can you remember back? i can i actually didn't
1: pass through this neighborhood that much even though it's only about a mile from where i live it just so happens that it wasn't really on my path to where i was going in my daily life i came here sometimes maybe to uh, meet some friends for a drink at weather up which was just down the street one of the early kind of cool spots on this particular strip it's a strip that. In my uh, observation of it, uh, had made several attempts over the past 12 or 15 years to uh, to bring some ambition to to the nightlife and and, and things going on here. Something, uh, you know, a layer above all the bodegas and uh, hair salons and and stuff that has existed here for a long time. And it should it, it it's like this neighborhood that should, in some way, uh, have sort of sped up and grown up along with some of these other strips like fifth avenue in park slope or smith street in carroll gardens you have these all of the the parts it's cent- centrally located it's uh leads right up to the opening of, of prospect park and, and the the brooklyn museum and the brooklyn library it's uh connected with with access you know it has all these elements and for, for some reason that this strip i think for so long had some trouble just sort of picking up and, and becoming the the commercial vibrant strip that i think it it, it could be and should be and right. I, you know you scratch your head and wonder why i didn't think too much about it seriously until one of the other spaces i, I was looking at much closer to home in park slope uh, i i was in the process of even putting a bid on uh on a lease on a space. Uh, it was taken by somebody else before we could, uh, could put ink to paper and you say, oh, shucks. Okay. That one got away. Um, but interestingly enough, the realtor for that one said, Hey, I think I got a space somewhere else, slightly different neighborhood. It's in prospect Heights. I actually am more bullish on that neighborhood, uh, than here. So I wouldn't sweat it too much, but come and take a look at this. Right. And you know, with a, a heavy dose of skepticism, I said, "Okay, yeah, I'll go check out what you got." And uh, it was uh, it was a space that had uh, all of the, all of the elements of in the space itself that, that I was looking for, uh, much better suited for this garden concept that I was thinking about. And then I started looking at the neighborhood, wondering what's going on here. And of course, you see, there's all sorts of development happening uh, on Atlantic and Vanderbilt, uh, with the whole Pacific uh, Park project going on there. You un- you start to understand. You put the pieces together. Say, hey, there's there's huge amounts of population that are still moving in here over you know from starting five years ago and going into the next 15 years, and just s- seeing how centrally located it is. It, I started to get convinced that hey, this is really now, with all of this investment going on around this neighborhood and in the neighborhood, this is the time where this is going to start moving. Yeah, and uh, you know, on that, I think I think that was that was a correct bet.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's obvious. I mean, you guys opened right around the same time that Olmstead opened. So Olmstead is kind of across the street and down a block. Uh, listeners may know that uh, the chef there is a guy named Greg Backstrom, and uh, it was you know on every top 10 list and really kind of anchored you know this the new development here and and now they have a second restaurant which is right down the street from you guys yep. a place called Maison Yaki uh, La Lou is right up the street, right? That's Joe Campanale's place. Yeah, after um, Fausto came on Flatbush, not yep. too far away. Yep, and Fausto's right over on Flatbush, right around the corner. So it's this neighborhood that, you know, ha- always had these little, like, neighborhood restaurants and, like you said, bodegas and, you know, little shops and all. And now you're starting to see a lot of that turn over and become more serious, um, more serious restaurants. Um, we've got some, you know, really great bakeries now on this strip. And, you know, we got the ice cream place. And, you know, a bunch of these restaurants. And so it is cool to see. I mean, your bet, I think, is I think you were largely right about that. It's definitely this whole strip is changing over just in the matter of a few years.
1: Yeah, I am always imagined uh, because of the big triumphal arch at the entry to Prospect Park, I I kind of half jokingly always said, well, then Vanderbilt should be the Champs Elysees (laughs) leading right up to the triumphal arch there. And let's, uh, you know, one block, it, one one building at a time, we can, we can turn it into that. that In time, level. right? In time.
0: <laughs> I, you know, we, uh, we always love this. So uh, my wife and I moved to Brooklyn uh, five years ago. And so, you know, we're not native Brooklynites. Um, and we were slowly, you know, exploring the different neighborhoods and all that. And uh, this just happens to be off our subway line, which is how we had discovered it. Um, Fausto, which is the restaurant on Flatbush, used to be a place called Franny's. Um, Franny's was uh, much beloved <laughs> here in the in the neighborhood and uh, my favorite too. It was It was pretty great. It was this you know, kind of really great pasta and pizza place with a, with a cool wine list. It was very comfortable. You could bring your kids and not feel bad if they were screaming because all the other kids were screaming. Um, but that place closed. Fausto took it over. Um, but that's how we had kind of discovered this whole this whole neighborhood. Uh, Fawn being one of the restaurants that we just kind of had wandered into uh, one day, which is how David and I met uh, many, many months um, ago.
1: I'm also happy to say that uh, I've got a good handful of the people that were working at Franny's over here at Fawn now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. Listen,
1: it doesn't surprise
0: me. Um, What year did you guys open again? Remind me. We opened in 2016. 2016. So now it's now three, almost four years. Uh, Yeah, three years and a couple of months that we're open now. Yeah, that's amazing. For uh, most places, don't make it past the year, and you guys are now here three years. And
1: it, it seems to be a meaningful, uh, little bit of a little bit of a mark to make that three year <laughs> yeah, point. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's not easy yet, <laughs> or will it ever be? Probably not. But you know, you you build up a certain amount of organic growth that that happens slowly over time, and you you know that you've got your 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 locals that love you. And that, you know, I've met a, a ton of great people that that I know by on a first name basis around here. It's one of the best things about doing a project like this. Yeah, for sure. And uh, th- those people are here. They're they're not going anywhere. And, 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 and that you've been able to build that up over three years time it gives you a, a foundation that is, is really hard, a hard point to get to but it is really helpful to know that they're there.
0: That I want to get to because uh, regulars, I always talk about how... um you know, breaking down marketing into a couple of different phases, you know, compartmentalizing it. It's, you know, how do you attract new diners? How do you turn them into repeat diners? And then how do you turn those repeat diners into evangelists for your brand? Getting to, you know, talk about it and rave about it and, and, and recommend you and bring other people, you know, how do you, so, uh, you know, getting into those three phases. So I want to get there, but I want to go back and I want to talk about the early days. Um, because, uh, it, things, it seems like things have solidified, you know, now three years in, um, but I'm sure it wasn't always that case. So if you can put yourself in that mind frame and go back um, to those early days, those those first few weeks. Um, so you take over the space, you build it out, you get your chef, you put together a menu, you get a staff, you open the doors. You make it sound easy. <laughs> You just do these things and then, boom, restaurant open. <laughs> you know, because uh, most of the people who listen to this podcast are all restaurant owners. They've gone through that and nobody wants... It's like going back to Nam. Nobody wants to talk about what happened. So, yeah. So, you got the space. You built it out. It was great. You found a chef. You uh, you built a menu and you opened the doors. Sure. And well, that was all very easy. <laughs> y-
1: you know, I think anybody who has opened a restaurant understands this, uh, this truth. You, you're you're going to take twice as long as, as you thought it would take to get the doors open, and it's going to take you twice as long as you thought it would take to to find efficiency once you're open and, and, and bring in enough volume to actually uh, you know, start even just breaking even on a weekly basis. So you, you end up automatically in this impossible situation. You're paying the carrying costs on a space for longer than you thought. You spent more on the renovation than you thought you would. You are way further into debt than you thought you would be when you open and yet you here you are, okay, we're gonna open the doors. We're gonna start making money to start to correct this situation. Well, guess what? You're not making money for a while.
0: Yeah, so, so talk about that because um, I'm glad you made this, You know, all joking aside, because um, it, it does kind of speak to the anxiety level, I think, when you open the doors. Um, I always say, and I've, I've said this on this podcast before, um, I think a lot of restaurant owners get in trouble because um, I think they do this uh, this field of dreams thing, right? Where they say, if we build it, they will come. I built it, I opened the doors, well, surely they will come. And I think largely that uh, turns out not to be the case unless you unless you do something about it. So talk to me about those early days. Mounting debt, uh, it, it takes you know all this extra time. You do open your doors. Um, what were those first few weeks like? Um. The first few weeks were euphoric, I,
1: I would have to say. That's when, I mean, it, it's, it's a lot of chaos, but for us, we happened to, um, you know, I think with a couple of, of strokes of luck, uh, happened to step into some pretty good PR before we opened. Uh, we were lucky enough to be in the neighborhood where, uh, where Florence Fabricant uh, frequents and uh, her daughter lives nearby. And she for, for those in of you
0: that don't know, Florence Fabricant is uh, a prominent columnist for the New York Times dining section. She has a, a column every week called uh, Off the Menu, and she's always talking about kind of the industry, you know, who's moving where, what new openings we've got going on, uh, where's this chef going, where's that chef going. So uh, so Florence Fabricant is uh, it, who David's talking about.
1: And she just happened upon us while while we were building the space out. I never put the brown paper over the windows because I actually wanted people to look in. I, I wanted to see them, I waved to them and get to know them. So I didn't, I, I said, we got nothing to hide here. Let's build interest by leaving the glass clear. Yeah, it's interesting. Propping the door open, let them step in and ask us what's going on. Uh, and I loved to tell them about what we were doing. And and, and one of those people was, was, uh, was Florence and that just was kind of a stroke of luck because that is the single best person to have become interested in you before you open, because of the column she writes, because of who she is, she's a wonderful person. She's really smart. She knows a, a lot about about restaurants in New York City more than just about anybody. And and she took an interest. And she, uh, sh- you know, she tracked us down. We didn't track her down. And how lucky is that? She actually wrote about us before we opened. Uh, automatically, you have hundreds of thousands of people that are now aware. Yeah, for sure, for free. So I I can't s- say you know enough how how much of a stroke of luck that little just that one was. little thing yeah because that you saw it there were we opened a couple weeks in i mean we had people here uh that i'm sure wouldn't have known about us otherwise right and that's so that was a crazy couple of weeks maybe even a month and a half or so where y- it was hard to get a reservation on a on a weekend night and it almost made it look like okay we did it we did it yeah we built it and they came um but you know it takes a couple of of cycles weeks and months to go by to start to understand uh, how your finances are actually operating in in this business that just opened and you start to see very quickly even though we had this kind of rush of interest and pretty decent volume you're so inefficient yeah in, in those early days just trying to just trying to Overstaffed to make sure everyone's getting their needs met it's so important uh, you know anybody in this industry knows to make a good first impression it's expensive to make a good first impression yeah it it is and you quickly uh have to kind of wake up from this sort of honeymoon phase uh and realize look we are spending way too much to put the service on that we're doing people are loving it that's great this is unsustainable right what are we going to do and then also we opened in late summer and winter is around the corner. And that was a hard pill to swallow because right. it's, uh, you know, January is a, is a hard month in Brooklyn for,
0: for, January well, January's hard uh, for most places, uh, certainly in the city and, um, certainly with a, with a patio like this, you know, and half your seats are outside. Not a lot of uh, New Yorkers are sitting outside in January. <laughs>
1: No, none of them are even going outside of their apartment. That's really... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seamless. Exactly. And, you know, we, that's, a cha- that's one of our challenges. We are not set up, in, in, you know, spiritually or even geometrically to, to send a lot of uh, to-go orders out the door. Our space is small. It's intimate. We only have our one little front door. Our bar and front seating area is right there. If that door is busting open with a guy in a Parker coming in out of the snow to collect to-go bags every 10 minutes, that's going to uh, blow open the dining experience yeah. that we're trying so hard to create. So we d- we made a decision we are not going to do that. Yeah, for sure. Which is a uh, kind of a bold decision now. Yeah, because well. it's how a lot of restaurants get through the winter. But we are so protective over that that experience
0: of the guests that I. You know, I just didn't want to blow that up. And I think that speaks to a good point. This is like a marketing point that I'm always trying to make, which is that, you know, knowing your audience, you know, figuring out who your audience is um, also helps you figure out who your audience is not. And so just by, you know, just by cutting out, you know, a certain demographic or a certain group saying, nope, that's not our audience. We're not going to cater to the people who just want to eat at home. We're catering to the kind of people who want to come here and get taken care of in our home. Um, I think that's bold, and I, I would venture a guess to say that that's probably helped you in the long run because um, it doesn't muddy the water. It, you can be really clear about the kind of place you are, You know what product you're offering, what experience.
1: Sure, and you know, pastas are one of our, our, our mainstays on our menu, and in my opinion, pasta does not travel well. It's a, it's a food that should be eaten right, right after it hits the table. Uh, otherwise, it, the quality just turns into something else. It's not just pasta. It's, it's pretty much everything that we put out. I shudder to think what kind of condition it would be in 35 minutes later when someone's sitting on their couch eating it.
0: Yeah. Okay, so let's say the first four to six weeks you open your doors and the Florence Fabricant effect has packed the room. Um, but it's not sustainable, it's not profitable because you're staffed up and you're just trying to make a good first impression. So then what did you, so what did you shuffle? You, you then got the staff, the, the labor in line. What did you shift after that?
1: Uh, well, it. you know, there's a, you have to attack this thing in, in so many fronts. But uh, Yeah,
0: let's get into it because that's the beauty of this podcast is that we don't have to skate over. We can get into the nitty gritty. This is not for, you know, the general audience. This is for other people like you, other restaurant owners. Um, let's get into it sure
1: well it, it became quickly uh, obvious to me that i i wasn't anytime soon going to be uh stepping out of this space anytime between seven in the morning and 2 a.m <laughs> I, I i i needed to I, I needed to be there both uh you know providing another set of hands to get stuff done because you just have to you know, I couldn't afford uh, a, a lot of management help off the, off the front. And here I am, I have to learn it all myself because I'm not in this industry. I knew what I was doing when I was building the space out, but I really, now I'm just learning what to do now that we got the door open because I'm not a restaurant guy. I had to figure that out day by day. I'm here, you know, like I said, uh, 14, 16, 18 hours a day sometimes to just to, not A, not overspend in staff, but B... I need to figure it all out. Yeah. Um, so I am tirelessly doing little bits of everything, and uh, you know, I, then I have to start taking the hatchet to the the, the, the roster of, of staffers because I can't afford all of them coming in. Um, especially once we start to shrink into winter, uh, you know, we realize, well, look, we got to cut it down to just the skeleton crew of people that are all working too hard to make this happen in a way that we're, we can get through this winter. Right. And I had to beg and plead for a little bit more investment from people to to get through that. You right. Know, I, you can't uh, underestimate how necessary it is to have some help along the way if you're going to do this. Uh, you know, you, you need to get try to you know try to save up more than you thought you needed, but you know you got to have some people in line that that are going to have your back if needed. Uh, and I also am lucky enough that my my wife. Uh, She kept her day job, and she has been able, thankfully, to help us um, make our way through uh, our own uh, personal family expenses while this upstart is happening. Uh,
0: Again, totally not possible without that. Doesn't happen in a vacuum. Doesn't happen alone. It takes a village uh, for sure. So you know,
1: in, in a lot of this stuff that I'm talking about, figuring out how to become more efficient with your staff costs, I'm still doing it. The worst, you know, we're, we're surviving and here we are. And that's, that's great in and of itself. But there is, I feel like we're, this is still a, a, a process and we're, we haven't figured it all out. we still, we still need to grow a little bit, a lot in some ways. Uh, and we still need to find efficiencies uh, to, to really bring it all together. I feel positive that we uh, have at least been on, on a road that's heading in the right direction, but uh, we haven't arrived. We're still working and I'm still uh, trying new things to try to you know, find these efficiencies uh, while also growing
0: the volume of, of, of guests coming in. Right, so two sides to, uh, to a P&L. You know, there's the, uh, the revenue coming in and then the, uh, the expenses that you've got, so managing both sides of that that's how you make a profitable restaurant sure and
1: uh you know i think everybody who works in new york city in this industry knows everyone who works on the on the restaurant ownership side knows uh staff costs are extremely high here that's uh, you're seeing different restaurant models pop up in response to that models that involve way fewer staff to to put it out uh yeah that's absolutely true it's not a coincidence uh, you know, on one hand, I fully support legislation that that increases the minimums that that people are making. It's not an easy place to live. I support everybody making more and more money. Of course, there's a limit to how much uh, a, a small business can uh, can spend on that, and there's a limit to how much we can increase uh, costs on the guest side because there's a there's a market condition that there you know you can't you can't mess with too much on that end. So you have to really get creative. That,
0: that's the interesting thing now, because as the uh, the minimum wage here in New York uh, has gone up again this past year, and um, this past year has been very, very hard on restaurants to maintain that. Uh, and again, like David said, uh, it's good, you know, everybody making a, a living wage and all of that. You know, New York City is not an easy place to live. But then what happens is that some of those costs get passed on to the customer. They just, they necessarily, they have to. And um, and now I think more than ever, you uh, Diners are being faced with the actual real costs of what a meal out um, costs. You know, they're, they're starting to understand that in a, in a new way that, you know, having really great product, having really great organic food, you know, grass fed beef, things like that. That's not cheap. Uh, line caught, you know, wild organic fish that does not come cheap. These things are all handcrafted, handmade Um and delivered. And the same thing is true with staff, right? It takes staff to, to make the food, cook the food, prep the food, wash the dishes, and it takes staff to, to serve and clear and and make your drink and all of that. Um, I think, uh, like I said, I think this past year, diners are being faced with the realities of that.
1: They are. And, um, you know, I think a large percentage of them understand, but there's a large percentage that still kind of hold these, uh, impossible opposites in their mind. Yeah. A, they all, everyone knows, that the restaurant industry is extremely challenging, and that the failure rate is 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 just super high. Uh, you know, to the point where it's like single-digit success rate in restaurants. They know that. They also know every time they go out that it costs them too much. So I don't know how they can yeah. simultaneously hold those extremes in their mind, but they they are they're they're pretty you know sunk in in those two beliefs. Right.
0: <laughs> Tell me when you first opened. Um you had done a, a no tipping policy. All the the staff was just paid uh, a higher hourly wage. Is that still the case, or have you re- reverted we, to uh, tipping?
1: Yeah, we actually uh, we held on to that for as long as as we could, and it it became pretty clear at a certain point that uh, there was there was a a negative effect to our revenue uh, based mm. on uh, you know w- w- what I th- I thought would be a, a kind of a a selling point. In, in terms of uh, positively taking control, of making sure everyone gets paid a fair wage. Uh, and, I, and I think in, in half of our uh, customer's mindset, it, it was, they really appreciated that. But there is a certain idea, you know, when, you, when you take tipping out of the equation, you're essentially putting the, the cost of, of dinner right up front. And we 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 have to look a little bit more expensive on our menu than our neighbor's restaurant does, who's who's got tipping going. And even though we're not asking you to shell out more at the end of dinner, that
0: psychological barrier. Do you think that, you think that was a barrier? I, I for think people?
1: that I think that was that was part of it for sure. I think there's also um, you know on the side of of staff. I think ideally they. The, our, our front of house staff uh, was behind it in an ideal world, but then when they were um, stuck with the reality of uh, not getting those those big windfall payouts on those big nights, you know, th- when you're getting paid a steady hourly rate, it just sort of evens everything out. Um, I think there was a little bit of a uh, you know a loss of that that game of let's go out and and really go for it on this Saturday night and and. You know, you could kind of see that there was, instead of them wanting to work that Saturday night, they they all wanted to work on a Tuesday night. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because
0: you work. (laughs) Yeah, you're working harder for the same amount of money on a Saturday night. Yeah. So So how how long ago did you guys get get rid of that? We got rid of that um,
1: on New Year's Day, uh, a year and
0: two-thirds ago. Uh, so some changes. The beginning of 2018. Yes. Wow, interesting.
1: As, uh, you know, knowing I'm going into the doldrums of winter now after the, the holiday parties, uh, really feeling like I had my back against the wall, something's got to change immediately to make this survive these dark couple right. of months ahead. And that, that you know, it's always hard to, you know, really know what the cause and effect of anything is, but I, I do feel like uh, it, that did loosen things up and make it a little bit easier to get through th- than it was the previous winter.
0: Just uh, talking about, you know, a dollars and cents running the business?
1: Yeah, it, it, it really took... Um, easier payroll, like it, I it, assume. Payroll was less, you know, it's just a different calculation. W- what was interesting was that, I, you know, I did see that our overall revenue wasn't actually that much less. It was, you know, you would think, okay, well, we're going to lower our menu prices because you're now going to be tipping. And, and we did lower those prices, uh, commensurate with, you know, the the expected idea of a tip. Right. But it's kind of, you know, I've, I've heard this refrained by other restaurateurs who tried it, the no tipping policy, and then went back. The, the, you realize the guests aren't actually spending necessarily that much less they're maybe ordering a little bit more harderly when the prices are just more in line with what they're used to. It doesn't, they, they don't stop and think about it and stop themselves from ordering that second glass of wine as much. Right. So in a way, you know, a lot of people were telling me this along the way, um, after it became kind of, obvious to more than just us a lot of people tried it around the time we were doing it yep i remember um and it seemed to be a a wave that was just getting started and was going to keep growing at that time that was so you know if there was a bet i made right on the location there was maybe a bet i made wrong about the size (laughs) of this wave growing and we wanting to be on the on the forefront of that um because the wave that wave shrunk and a lot of restaurants that got in on the no tipping game here in new york uh, they, they did a U-turn and yeah. went
0: back. You know, which is, it's funny uh, to hear because, um, cause I waited tables for, uh, for a long time here in the city. Um, I've been in the industry for 20 years, 17 of those in the city and you know, more than half of them waiting tables. And so I understand how important tips are, um, and how nervous I was when places started, uh, implementing a no tipping rule. But I will say, uh, on the customer basis, when I go out to dine, And I'm at a restaurant that has no tipping. I'm like, this is great. I love this. It's a really great experience on on the guest side. Uh, There are times when I don't realize that I'm at a no tipping establishment. And at the end, I basically like somebody gave me 20% back because I was already expecting to pay another 20%. And I'm like, well, this is awesome. I got all this extra money. (laughs) Um, And then there are other times when I look and I'm just like, oh, I like knowing what the actual dollar amount is. You know, when I order a wine, when I order... Like, I know what it, I know what it's going to be. Um, but, think, you know, uh, so just from the diner perspective. Yeah, I think that's just my experience. I
1: think you're you're in a, a relative minority. And, uh, I, and I can I can recognize w- that with that. Um, and we did have a lot of diners that that would uh, claim their appreciation for it. And that was great to hear. But we also had plenty of diners that came in and and just uh, constructive criticism vocalized how much they liked the tip system. Yep. It gave them some sort of idea of uh, you know a way to reward good service, and it gave them a feeling of control American over the situation. American diners
0: love that control. Yes. They like to be able to, to be judge and jury at the end of a meal and say, this service was good. It it is worth this much. And no, this this service was not. Which is a very strange thing. There's nothing else in the world. There's no other service you receive, no other product you receive in the world where you have that kind of uh, control. And I think that's why American diners are holding on to it. Um, I do think that in time, uh, tipping will go away in this country. Um, I think it's just an inevitability. When I have no idea, and I certainly uh, you again as you're testifying to the challenges of it. Um, but it's interesting. So, okay. So you did away with the tipping and you, or the no tipping. People now can, uh, you lower the prices and people can now tip. Um, let's talk then about, about, you know, those, those couple of years then after the the six weeks, as you start, you start getting in here, um, you're now three years in and you've gotten all of these regulars now, people in the neighborhood, people who come back once a week, once uh, you know, once every couple of weeks. And that provides kind of the, the foundation for your sure, covers, right? One of the things I like to talk about here on the show is, you know, I, I just like to, to kind of simplify things. And I always try to compartmentalize it because, you know, marketing can sound really like big and fancy and, and, you know, like you use all these different kind of big words. And, but really it just comes down to finding your audience, you know, figuring out who wants your product. So, you already know the product, right? It's this, you know, comfortable, homey um, neighborhood restaurant in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. How did you, did you ever think about marketing? How did you find your audience? Or or maybe if you didn't think about it in the beginning, now looking back on it with 2020, you know, can you offer some insight having gone through sure. it?
1: Sure. I mean, I think it's because I kind of thrust myself into this without without knowing a whole lot about even general business strategy. I never went to business school and I, and I never really spent much time working in restaurants except for being a busser in high school, which I don't really count as much. But um so I'm figuring out a lot of things and uh feeling pretty lucky that we str- we we kind of started off on a on a early early wave that came from some some lucky good PR. Um but that, you know, those things don't last. Uh, at a certain point, that first winter we went through and, and people weren't coming in, you know, it's, it's, it became apparent, uh, even though money was, was non-existent uh, to spend on anything, it became apparent we're going to have to find something to spend on a PR strategy just to uh, increase the, the breadth of awareness, just to, just, you know, it was kind of an in, in initial push to to get the word out so visibility but yeah let's you know i think cuz i knew just on just on these blocks in a very tight radius around us that's that's where our core constituency was was always going to be and i also knew that there were a ton of these people cuz i would talk to them on the streets and tell them who we are oh i had never heard of you i've never seen so I, you know it became clear right away there is a huge uh, target audience that doesn't know about us yet. That to me was a positive because that meant there's opportunity. Yep. Yep. Right here. These are our people. How do we find them? Uh, you know, so there's that kind of geographically, uh, tight radius right here. And then there's also another mindset of what type of person that lives in New York city wants to come to this restaurant. And that's how you figure out who you're going to target that may be coming in from neighborhoods over or manhattan or even you know if they're coming in to visit the city from somewhere else will will we get on a list of of restaurants that they might be interested in in coming to so you know we we with our uh with a pr company that we worked with early on we worked with ms creative they were great um they uh go right into places like um like eater infatuation uh, Grub Street these these uh, local periodicals that are sort of really uh, tuned into what's what's cool what's hot what's what 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 are the foodies gonna be interested in you um, know so it was really important to get our name in front of of, of these people um, so getting a I think the most important thing is getting a, a, a PR team that's gonna connect with the right people just to come in and, and experience your place so that they might have a good experience in, in order to write you up and get you on their lists. And, and, and that, that kind of worked for, for that first push.
0: So then, so that was your first put you know, so the first thing you did then when you said, okay, we have to do something was to hire the PR company yeah. to try and give you some visibility to get you placed in on sites like the infatuation and eater and grub street to get you on, you know, top 10 places to go have brunch or top 10 new restaurants opening in Brooklyn or those kind of best. So that's what we're talking about. Absolutely. And you felt like that, that really moved the needle at that time.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, it's like I said, it's always impossible to say what caused what, but, um, you know, once you get, once you get spoken of highly by a couple of these places, you're, that's just going to direct another strong handful of people to at least come and give you, uh, give you a try. Now I always take the approach when it comes to these things that, You know, the most important thing for any business PR strategy is to provide a good product that people are going to want. It's one trick to get them in to try it. It's another trick to get them a to come back themselves, b to tell their friends to come in. Uh, So you have to first things first, provide that fantastic experience, take care of it, make sure it's consistent, and you're doing it every time someone comes in the door. Uh, That's. That's where ninety percent of the energy has to go. That's that's the part that's going to keep the or, the organic
0: growth, which yeah. is which is the slow growth. Well, that's which is word the sustainable of mouth. Growth. Word of mouth has always been the most valuable uh, marketing tool in the restaurant industry, in in most small businesses, but certainly for restaurant industry, um, word of mouth is crucial, and that that hasn't changed. I always say that you know social media is the new word of mouth. I said, you know, stop thinking of social media as something else, something over here, something else we have to be doing. It's just now, instead of people call, picking up the phone and saying, oh my God, I just ate at this really great restaurant. It's called Fawn over in Prospect Heights. They go, they're typing, you know, they're they're posting a picture and, and typing their review there saying, hey, just dined at this really great place in Prospect Heights. It's the same thing. They're just, the, the word of mouth is happening sure. in, a, in a different way. It, it It's a there,
1: there's a crossover, but I do feel like there's a, there's a fundamental difference. They're both important pieces of the puzzle. But I think when, when, uh, someone, you know, and trust personally tells you directly to try a place there, there's a, there's a power that's even stronger. And that's just the old fashioned thing that's been around for since the beginning of restaurants. Um, and I think, I still think that's the, that's your best thing thing yep. to happen. Yep, I would agree and with and that. And the social media, is it's like casting a much wider net. Uh, oftentimes, you're you're reading a review of someone who you don't necessarily know
0: personally. No, I mean, right? it, you know, it's funny you made this, but the distinction I make is that I'll see a friend. So it used to be, right, you get together with friends and you say, hey, have you guys been anywhere, uh, anywhere good recently? And they say, oh yeah, I went to this place called Fawn. But now, I've already seen that my friend Michael went to Fawn and said, Hey, I saw you went to Fawn. I saw it on your shoe. So tell me about it. Was it really that good? And so it's the, it's the conversation starter. It's the spark of the conversation. So while yes, you're right. It casts a wide net. Um, now that's how word of mouth starts. But my point to all of this is that even though social media feels new and it feels high tech or whatever, it's still just word of mouth. It all sure. just comes down to person to person. You making a recommendation and then you taking someone else up on that recommendation. Sure. And,
1: and I almost feel like uh, the way things like Instagram have evolved, it's uh, people are, are, are interacting with it uh, a little bit differently than they did when, even when we opened. I feel like... Um, there's, there's less of a likelihood that you're just going to post something and get a thousand likes now. It's going to, I mean, they've even changed their structure somewhat Yeah, uh, that I think focuses your, your efforts and your, your output more to a a tighter group of people. So it might look like you're getting fewer likes on things, but I think they're more effective likes because it's, it's, it's hitting people who are more, uh, more in your your radius or in your demographic that you're seeking. It's like the people who are potentially going to be the most effective. True fan. It's funny.
0: It's a it's a really interesting point. Um, uh, Seth Godin is a is a best-selling marketing author and he's this like marketing guru, and he always talks about uh, the smallest viable audience. Right, like find the smallest audience that wants exactly what you're creating and just cater to them over and over and over again. Uh, there's a there's a famous essay uh, years ago, a guy named Kevin Kelly wrote called A Thousand True Fans. Have you ever heard of it? I know Kevin Kelly, uh, I, I didn't read that Oh, one. you've gotta look at So uh, I'll link to this in the show notes, um, uh, but it's called uh, A Thousand True Fans. And it basically says, you know, you get a thousand true fans to pay you X number of dollars a year and you can make a good living. Like you don't need a million people to come into Fawn. You just need, a couple thousand over the course of the year or a thousand people coming back two or three times over the course of the year to pay your bills, keep the lights on and make it a profitable restaurant. And I think it, it just changes the, um, it just changes the conversation rather than reaching for everyone, just getting that very, uh, very narrow, very specific, like you were talking about, like sure. you felt like the audience right around here, the people who live around here, who, um, that there was enough audience built in here. If you could just capture some of them.
1: Sure. And they're the ones that are going to they're going to be coming in on a Monday or Tuesday night when you really have the seats that you, you're you trying desperately to fill. And it's that's that's <laughs> every restaurant's challenge right there.
0: That's always the hardest part. We don't <laughs> live in this neighborhood. My wife and I and our son, we live, I uh, don't you know, 10 subway stops away. And so we pretty much always come here on the weekend. And uh, Fawn is a very hard reservation to get on a weekend, I, especially if you want to sit in the back patio. It's uh,
1: People tell me all, all the time how hard it is to get a reservation here. And I'm coming, looking at it from the other side, and, and I'm thinking... Wow, I I I feel like I look at my books for the week. I've got so many available reservations, and I want to (laughs) fill them, and I I can't. Uh, But you know, from their perspective, they want to eat
0: at 7:30. Yeah. on a Friday night. <laughs> yeah, no, listen, uh, there have been plenty of times because we eat early because, you know, kids got to be in bed early. My son's only four and uh, and it's even hard then. And then I have restaurateurs tell me, uh, which I'm sure you're going to tell me next, like, oh, we always keep seats open. You should come by. Always call. Which is totally which is totally true. And uh, and so you should always try. If you're in Brooklyn and you want to check out uh, Fawn, you should do it and just stop by, just call ahead. The problem with us is that once we get to this neighborhood with a four-year-old and we've gotten them all geared up for a restaurant, if we can't get into that restaurant, it's very hard to change his mind out of it. I know. Listen, I
1: have a six-year-old. I've been through the last six years of, of this too. The great thing about having a kid, I, I find when we go out to eat, is that we do we want we want to we want to be there right when you open. Yeah, because we got to get that kid home to get them in bed, and so that's when I want to eat. And I, I'm always a little bit surprised that. All these people in Brooklyn, I mean, everyone has a kid in Brooklyn, right? So w- where are all these 5.30 p.m. diners? Uh, you know, I, I want I, I want them all wanting, busting down our door at 5.30. <laughs>
0: Having been in the restaurant industry for as long as I've been in, I always feel that. I'm like, they're gonna love me, because we're in at 5.30, we're out at seven, so we could get home by 7.15 to get the whole bedtime routine. Yeah. They're gonna love me. I'm flipping that table. Easy first It's turn. free money. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: Uh, the other the other guest that I'm still looking for is uh, someone who resembles me, ten years ago as a as a younger professional in New York City without children, who works relatively late into the night most nights, and I come back to my neighborhood and it's 9:30 and I want dinner. Yeah. And I have, uh, a, a, I have a paycheck and not a lot of time, so I'm not cooking at home very much. I would go out to dinner at 9:30 or 10 o'clock all the time back in those days right so, so I'm wondering where those people are on a, on a Wednesday night now <laughs>
0: so so that's really so that's really interesting okay so if you've identified um, the people in the neighborhood right mm-hmm. uh, as your as your kind of core audience which makes sense it's a relatively affluent area and there are a lot of young professionals with families and all of that uh, people who would come out for a nice meal because um, that's what this is at Fawn. it's it's comfortable it, it's um, you know it's homey it's casual but um, but it's good food and it's not super expensive but it's also not not cheap um, you know, you pay for the quality. So, if that's your core audience, right, and you've been building that audience, and that audience has, you know, told other families and stuff like that, then is this now your new target? You're trying to figure out then how to build some of that late night, that after eight thirty.
1: Well, interestingly enough, I um, I I thought that was more part of our target when I opened. Right. I have uh, I've come to terms with what I believe is a, a shift in the demographic in these neighborhoods around where I live here where they grew up like me and they haven't necessarily all moved out. They just grew up and had kids and they are, they have different habits when, when you have that, that lifestyle, even if they have, uh, you know, a, a, a decent financial footing, uh, they're, they're people who could afford to come out to eat uh, a couple t- times a week, but they don't necessarily have the energy or the time to, to do, do it anymore. So I realized, you know, quickly we're, we're kind of, we seeking a different de- demographic or I was hit over the head with a different demographic which is uh, uh an older age group with uh, you know they are the ones that will actually come
0: later in the, the em- evening the empty nest crowd they
1: don't have kids to worry about getting right. to bed they will um they're also um you know they're, they're they're not quite as uh, as as tight with their pocketbooks as some of the the younger patrons we get in here. So it's like, wow, these people. I had no idea a lot of them were here. But there 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 is a interesting. It makes sense to me. There's a growing uh, demographic, I think, in these neighborhoods of uh, uh, an older generation that realizes what why do I want to retire in some sort of sleepy community somewhere? There's it's actually I think a perfect place to be. Right. You can you know take a, an easy walk. A couple blocks to the grocery store, you can move around. You're you're less likely to become sedentary when you're in a city that kind of promotes movement.
0: Now you get the free time and all the culture around here. You can take advantage of it.
1: Right, and these people, uh, you know, I kind of envisioned a different thing. Uh, you know, when we opened, well, yeah, we're going to be part of this young wave of, of of Brooklyn restaurants with loud hip music playing and. You know, more and more I've realized I've got to turn the music down a little bit because right. people can't hear each other over their hearing aids. I've got to turn the lights up maybe a little bit because they're right. all pulling their flashlights out to read the menu. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, that's it's interesting. I mean, I think that's um, that's so much the learning curve uh, of a lot of restaurateurs, um, uh, certainly who have uh, succeeded. You have to listen to your patrons. You have to, you know, stay open and, um, and make the changes or, or go in the direction that your patrons want you to go in. Um, while still holding on to who you are and what you're trying to do. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, well, you, you also, you know, for me, I think the, the biggest piece of any uh, PR strategy that we've always had is taking the time to personally get to know the people who come in the door. I do it as much as I possibly can. Uh, and, and, and moreover, you know, you try to get people working here who have a natural ability to connect with, with people. Uh, because we're small, and that's one advantage that we can actually leverage here. When you're small you have the the same few uh, staffers that that people see when they come in time and time again they can really get to know you that's that's you know, it's not going to be the same experience when you go to a, a you know a larger 100 seat enterprise right. so we can take advantage of that and and ma- make that a special thing we can provide and then it gives us the ability to really understand them i hear a lot of honest opinions from the people i know and sometimes they tell me what we're doing that they think is off And that to me is gold Um, that sometimes mostly they tell us what they think is great. And that's, (laughs) that's really nice to hear, but I'm really after their, their criticisms. I want to hear what was, what was off uh, about, you know, this, that, or the other thing, Uh, nitpicky little details. I love it. Tell me what's wrong so that we know. Yeah. And
0: then information is free at the end of the day. You don't have to take their, their advice, but, just listen to it because every you know one out of every 10 you're going to go oh that's really insightful that Absolutely. i hadn't thought about that or you're going to string it together with a criticism you heard the week before and say you know that criticism didn't make sense but now i hear this and i think they're they're related and uh, maybe we should make a change i think i think staying uh, humble and i think the restaurant industry if it if it's if it's chewing you up right um will, will keep you humble because just when you think you know what you're doing it uh it reminds you that you have no idea what you're doing
1: oh yeah i mean you're, you're you're dealing with people ultimately either your guests or your staff. Yeah. And all of the inconsistencies and illogical everything that comes with that, um, you you can't ever think that you just can predict what's going to happen. Every evening feels different from the from the last. Yeah.
0: And and you're not creative. I mean, we always talk. I always talk about the product, right? Like your the pro. What's the product you're offering? But the product you're offering is an experience. An experience isn't isn't a ride you get on. It's not a roller coaster. You pay your money. You get on the roller coaster and you go through the experience of that. The experience is changing, and it's got to be tailored to what this table wants versus what this table wants. Right? When when I come in with my kid, it's for one kind of experience. When a you know when a table of three couples come in, that's a different experience. When you know the empty nester couple comes in, you know this these older retirees that's a different experience too and, and how do you how do you mold what you're trying to do to the experience that they're looking after and that's i think the fun of it that's the the zen of it right sure. it's ever-changing
1: sure you also i think what what we know we offer as part of the experience here is that it is intentionally always going to be different we have like we said we have a, a tiny kitchen we can't uh, put out a super long menu what we can do is put out a short focused menu that's seasonally changing and changing a lot. And that keeps things fresh in its way. Uh, and that's a huge part of our strategy to keep the, the the locals interested in coming back week after week, month after month, whatever their frequency is. They, they can take comfort in the fact that what you know they're gonna find something new something different they can also have a different experience in the in the a nice fall evening you can dine on the patio in the winter you get cozy by the win- window and watch the snow fall right through the candlelight so the, it's an ever-changing thing uh, very much not like getting on the cyclone that's gonna be the same ride over and over and over again yep. it's uh, what we are selling is that that mystery that unpredictability that um, you know Hopefully the only, the only consistency is that it's going to be a quality experience, but you know, who are you going to, who are you going to meet when you come here? What's going to, what's on the menu tonight? What's, uh, what's the weather? Cause it makes a difference in what this place feels like.
0: Yeah, this, uh, th- you're, you're absolutely right. The fawn has a, a different identity in the spring than it does in the summer, in, in the fall. And, you know, as opposed to the winter, um, so then, so then what's next? So then if things have, um, if things have settled and they're, you know, never, never set, you know, but things have settled at least a little bit and it's running, you're still open, it's profitable. And so what's the next, what's the next thing you're looking at? I mean, you guys just went through, so before we started recording, we were talking about um, how you guys went through a chef change over the last year yeah and we, uh, you we, went we through a, a bunch of different uh, chefs and now have settled on uh, on somebody that's a really good fit for the place again.
1: Yeah, yeah. Our uh, our first chef, Brian Leth, uh, he was instrumental in getting us on on the map. Uh, I mean, his food was so good. Uh, he, he was a you know a interesting personality uh, on the kind of local uh, culinary scene in Brooklyn for the last decade and a half or so, and um, he was uh, great. In two years in, uh, he decided. He was uh he was onto his next uh, adventure, which was to leave town altogether. He's up at a, a restaurant called Fish and Game in in Hudson, New York.
0: Yeah, with uh, Zach Palacio, is uh it's a is a cool restaurant.
1: Yeah, so um, you know I, I, I he put in two years of, of of opening this place with us, and 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 that I thank him uh, forever. I hated to see him go, of course, but I supported him uh, chasing his his dream for greener pastures and forests and mountains
0: there's a time to come to the city and there's a time to leave his food was phenomenal but uh you certainly can't uh bum out about him wanting to get out of the city
1: sure well i can bum out about it i did (laughs) but uh you know you gotta you you gotta not spend too much time doing that what are we doing next okay we went through three different starts and stops through different personalities it's it's not easy to find the right fit for a very particular kind of place like this and um thankfully it took us probably about seven or eight months of, of, of false starts before we got uh, chef Kieran Minihan, who uh, you know th- he's a little bit younger this is his first uh, time stepping into an executive chef uh, position uh I, he was a recommendation from a good friend of mine who uh, was a longtime chef over at Gramercy Tavern Kieran worked there under him for a while and uh He went on to uh, a couple other stints. He was at Del Posto. He was at Maidsville. He was, you know, kind of rounded out his experience in all the right ways, uh, tasted his food. His personality is, uh, you know, great. He's just really a, a, a... A boisterous and vibrant and lovable guy and uh, he's really cobbled together a a positive energy here so it took a while it it took me wondering if we were going to make it honestly yeah really because because you know your your opening chef um he he wasn't a small part of the identity of fawn he was a you know he was the reason a lot of people came in there and we knew that um we had to uh figure out how to what what was the next move forward how do we keep it within uh you know a cost efficiency that we can afford you know i didn't think the right move was necessarily uh shelling out what it would have taken to get another kind of a well-known celebrity name in
0: here i just didn't have the funds to do that and i don't think that's what what's needed here i think it's it's not what we're about yeah i mean everything we've talked about the last you know certainly half hour is just about you know, taking care of people, you know, personality stories, you know, really getting to know people. And I think that speaks to, you know, to what you've built here. So sure. how has the new menu fitting in with that, you know, that kind of mischievous playfulness, um, how has it developed in new ways? can you speak to that for a Sure. Minute?
1: Sure. I would say, uh, Kieran brings, uh, a, a different kind of a, a geographic sensibility to it. interestingly enough, he's not born in the States. He's, he's born in London. Uh, spent some time with uh, with different family growing up in the states at various points of time and then uh, really uh, put a, a, a firm root in the city starting when he was around 20 years old. I think in the same way that the Rolling Stones come from Britain and really take a reverence to Southern American music and infuse and, and that into what they're doing, he almost takes a more of a this kind of soul of America sort of uh, essence t- in, into his cooking. So you're going to get these kind of uh, Louisiana uh, piquillo pepper spices that pop up in interesting ways here huh. and there. You're going to get uh, these kind of homages to uh, classic New England lobster and chowders. You're going to you're going to see just these little more hints of how uh, these truly uh american-based cooking styles uh, are can I- inform our fundamental italian basis for for cooking and you know it's we're still we're still doing the classical style three-course italian uh, dinner but you're just you're just getting these uh a little bit more uh, american uh, you know some some of the things are maybe even a little more comforting uh, i think brian was uh, what he brought was uh, this kind of a uh, Really, a, adventure into uh, things that were, might have be, might have been on, on that kind of edge, that frontier for people of what what they are comfortable with and what they're not. And, the and Borscht, um, <laughs> or or lamb hearts and all these things. Yeah, really great stuff that he was doing with these things. Uh, it took an, uh, it took a certain adventurous mindset to to right. really approach that. Um, and I think that we're, while we're trying to keep a certain amount of that, I think you know we've realized our our neighborhood is here. You have to. Be strategic about how much you're going to, uh, you know, nudge them in the direction of the adventurous, yep. and that's always, p- uh, you know, part of our goal. But I think we're we've kind of uh, uh, set the dial maybe a little bit more towards familiar, yep. uh, and then it's it's in more subtle ways that you kind of work in these these adventure corner adventurous corners of, of the
0: yeah, cooking world. I, I like the way that you put it. That there's a, there's an irreverence to the way he approaches kind of American classics, um, you know, approaching it as an outsider. So to speak, um, but that's how you speak to the, the, the mischief, the the mischievous, playful quality of you know of this mythical creature. Um, listen, I, I appreciate you taking the time. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I guess uh, just a couple of things that I want to ask before we wrap up. So there's this one question that I that I ask all the guests that I that I sit down and talk with, which is um, which is two sides of the same coin. What was easier than you expected it to be? In opening the restaurant and getting it to this point, and what's been harder than you ever expected to get to this point?
1: I think the, uh, I think it was it was easier to get the staff on board in a positive way, and and wanting to uh, really you know work hard and and focus on on building this thing. I it, it, I always sort of um, you know I, I shudder to think about how how am I going to get. 20 to 30 people, all these people kind of, uh, focused in one direction. I, I don't have a lot of management, uh, uh, experience. Um, and when I did have management experience, it was in the architecture studio where you're, you're dealing with, you know, everyone else also has a graduate degree in architecture and they're there and it's just a kind of different idea. Yeah. In a restaurant, you're, you're managing a, a much more broad, uh, set of, of people that are coming from all sorts of different places a lot of them uh, speak only a little bit of English and it's just you have just this this large and and varied demographic that you're now managing that is not something that I had any experience in doing but I was um, positively surprised by uh, you know how much what really what they 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 want to hear from from me, they want to hear from the managers, but they really want to hear from from me what 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 the vision is. They they can, you know they want to know how they can be the most helpful they can possibly be to make it happen. And that that's it's touching and also you know I I I guess I thought that it was going to just be more of a of a beast to kind of get them all focused than people, it was.
0: People crave leadership, and I think um, just a little bit goes a long way. Just showing some you know some vision. I always say that. You know, leadership comes down to vision, you know. Uh, and communication, yeah, which communication. is not just my forte. Yeah, just being able to have a vision, understanding where we're going, and then communicating to everybody which way we're going. Hey, sure. that's sure. where we're going. We're going over that way. And,
1: and, they, you know, telling them that they didn't do something the way you want it done, that was hard for me to do in the beginning. Um, but then you, you start to, to realize, like, that shows them that you care. And that, yeah. to them, is actually really important.
0: That's that Danny Meyer principle, the salt shaker theory. You know, it's right. I feel like I talk about this all the time. It's just just by you showing them, you know, the salt shaker theory is that, do you know, have you read the book, Setting the Table?
1: I, I have. I do have that book at home and I've read bits and pieces of it. But um, I'm not, I don't don't know if I remember this. So Danny's big uh, salt
0: shaker theory is that, you know, everyone's always going to be trying to move the salt shaker off center. But if you know where it is, center is your you know, your your ideals, right? This is what we do. And Salt Shaker always goes here. And so when people move it, the guests are going to move it. The, the staff isn't going to put it in the right place. You just show them. It goes right back here. It goes right back here. Constant, uh, constant, uh, gentle, pressure and just do it every day little by little just by showing that somebody cares enough to put it back on center it shows your staff oh they care they care enough so i i should care it takes so little to just do the right thing to put the salt shaker where it's supposed to go yeah that that's me with the with the dimmer switch on the lights <laughs> Guys, guys
1: it needs to be here but it, you said yesterday it needed to be there i'm like that was at 6 30 now it's 7 30 and the sun's a little bit lower it needs to be here now and it needs to change yeah. in another th- 30 minutes <laughs> right. right
0: so if that was the easy part right so um you know rallying your team and i think um, knowing you as i do i think that probably has a lot to do with you and how you've approached this transition in your career the the humility you bring to it i think you can't fake that um i think just by you know coming at people uh, honest and open, and, and you know, and asking them to do things that you're certainly uh, you're certainly not asking them to do things that you're not willing to do yourself. Um, I assume that's where it comes from because because uh, people don't have always such an easy time with personnel that you've had. But so if that was the easy part for you. Then what was the hardest? What was the harder part? I mean, thing that, you didn't expect.
1: I think the hard part uh, we we touched on a, a little bit, uh, but it also comes down to uh, staff, and not because of the people themselves, but because of It it is this beast of a a cost that you are trying to figure out, how do I get this thing within reason relative to our revenue? You know, you you go into this and you hear numbers like, well, your staff costs should be no more than 35% all in. Uh, I can't find a way to get close to that. It's just Hmm. no matter what I try, You know, you try to cut staff and then all of a sudden you're understaffed and something's not getting done properly. And, you you know, it just it takes a certain uh, amount of people to get what we do done. And I think I've especially realized there's a certain inefficiency baked into our model here. Having this great patio is a blessing and a curse yeah. because it, it it builds in this unknown. We don't know how big of a restaurant we are going to be from night to night. Right, uh, you have to staff for the 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 bigger scenario all the always, and then and then you make those and cuts they cut down. Yeah. yeah, you know those cuts don't always sit well with people. So there's this aspect of trying to you know, keep the, keep the, the positivity and the, and, and the staff all, all moving forward, which thankfully they, they, they're on board with doing, but you're trying to do, you know, keep it as efficient as possible while, you know, not breaking the bank. And you, as much as you want to give everyone a raise and pay them more and more and more, you know, that's, the money just isn't there to do all these things. So that, I mean, that's the challenge. It's like, how do we, it's like, how do we find that efficiency? How do I do it in a way that doesn't, completely drive me insane because i i it was not sustainable for me personally to do everything until two in the morning every night right i i, I can't physically do that <laughs> so it, you know you can for a,
0: for a time but after a, time. a while, it catches up to you yeah, yeah.
1: absolutely uh so you know that's that's always that that's the part of this game uh you know like as we we're talking about the the major two-prong strategy you gotta you gotta build your business up but you also have to keep costs in check um Getting getting food costs in check is one beast, but it's a lot more predictable because food products are what they are. Uh, they're not people that are constantly throwing curveballs in your direction.
0: I love how your answer for the easiest was the people and <laughs> your uh, th- answer for the hardest was the people. It, it's th- absolutely
1: true. And it's not the <laughs> people themselves. It's just the it's the situation of running uh, staffing a restaurant in new york city uh, right. it depends on people and the fact that you want to take good care of these people yeah. is part of that challenge they're not robots that you can just dial down their hours and not have an effect on their life right you, you know they 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 have livelihoods if i have to make cuts i they come to me and and say that this is this can't work for them they have they have rent to pay right your heartstrings are being tugged at yeah. and i and, and i and i'm a feeling person I, I i really love my staff and i and they know <laughs> and i think sometimes they use that to, yeah. to my disadvantage <laughs> uh, it's hard for me to say no when someone says they need something yeah uh, uh, and that's part of the hospitality um, but sometimes you have to and sometimes that that's like the that's the hugely challenging part of it is like yeah. you're trying to you're trying to provide the best for your guests and your staff. And uh, sometimes
0: those ends are not compatible. I love sitting here and talking with you because, uh, you came to the restaurant industry, uh, relatively late in life. You know, uh, you've just been in it for the last five years, let's say. And, um, and yet you're, uh, y- you've already figured a lot of things out and you've already made a lot of mistakes and course corrected, um, to get them going in the right direction. And you're obviously doing a lot of things right. Um, It's just it's always really refreshing to sit down and uh, and talk to you because of the way that you you view hospitality and and the industry and all that. So I thank you for taking the time. Of course. To uh, to sit with me. Um, I I hope everybody uh, listening in uh, got a lot out of this uh, conversation. I think, again, it's just uh, one little neighborhood restaurant in Brooklyn. But uh, I think the story can extrapolate out. I think there are a lot of lessons uh, from Fawn and and David David's experience here that can be um, that can be applied no matter where you are. Um, so I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to share the story. Um, real quickly, before I let you go, where can people find out more about uh, you and the restaurant and um, well, tell them where can, to go? The uh,
1: easiest thing to do is just check us out. We're at faun.nyc. That's F-A-U-N n.nyc. You see our menus posted there. Uh, we are on Instagram at, uh, at faun.nyc easy to find us there. And uh, yeah, we're here at 606 Vanderbilt in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn.
0: Excellent, I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. Uh, Thanks everybody for listening. We will see you.
1: Thanks Chip, great to talk to you.
0: Humble and curious, David uh, is an all around good guy and I'm glad he's finding success with his gem of a restaurant. If you're in the New York City area, go pop in, introduce yourself. Grab a bite and tell them you listened to the interview. That's how community happens. That's how community is built. Real people in real life connecting over the dinner table. This week's assignment is the same as your continuing education. I want you to read Kevin Kelly's essay, A Thousand True Fans. We talked about it earlier in the episode. Again, there's a link in the show notes. It'll take you just five or ten minutes to read. And I promise you, if you're reading it right, it's going to change the way you look at the world. In fact, we're going to spend an entire episode on the topic in just a few weeks, so this is going to put you in a good position for that conversation. As always, I want to thank you for giving me your time and attention. We all have very busy lives, and with so many great podcasts out there, please know it means the world to me that you chose to listen to this one. If you haven't done so already, uh, hit the subscribe button. And if you have a minute to go drop us a rating or a review, please do it, especially on Apple podcasts and on Stitcher. It really helps boost us in our category until next time. I'll see you.